0: Well, good morning. It is truly good uh, to be with you. Um, as at least some of you know, I arrived uh, back from Ukraine um, early in the morning, Saturday morning, um, and um, got a little bit of rest since then. So hopefully, I'll do something other than babble uh, incoherently up here this morning. But uh, as you're turning in your Bibles to James chapter two, uh, I want to just take the opportunity just to thank you, uh, thank the congregation, and thank the elders. For allowing me uh, to miss uh, last Sunday and uh, to be traveling uh, several times uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine on February 24th and also for your understanding of why I I couldn't share uh, my travel plans publicly in advance. I just appreciate your understanding of that. I want you to know uh, that you're my first priority, Um, same thing I've been telling my kids over the last month, uh, these are extreme situations and unusual times uh, to be gone uh, so much. So, really appreciate uh, your understanding of that. Also, want to let you know, um, you know it's not good to arrive. One day and then tell the congregation you're going to be gone again. But I am going to be out uh, next Sunday, this time not because of travel, but because of a rescheduled surgery. I was supposed to have one a couple months ago, some minor outpatient procedure. It kept getting rescheduled because of my Ukraine trips. And so uh, the latest uh, rescheduling is this week. And so I'll be out next Sunday. Uh, But you have a really special treat awaiting for you as Pastor Jeremy uh, brings the word of God to us. Then on the 29th, uh, we also have something really special in store. Uh, We're going to have a guest speaker coming, um, Dr. Ahmad Shahadeh, the president of Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. So I'll I'll be here uh, with you enjoying uh, his ministry of the word. So the plan is to give a a congregation a major update on uh, our ministries in Ukraine on June 5th. So uh, make sure you're here for that. I'll be sending out some updates by email and uh, perhaps some by social media. Uh, In between now and then but uh, the public uh, one will be on June 5th till then I just want you to know that the Lord is greatly using your generous giving it's making a major impact in over 20 locations in strategic places across Ukraine your funds are meeting the needs of the suffering and enabling them to hear the gospel of grace people are being helped and people are being saved I wish i could somehow help you to feel um the wetness of the kisses that an elderly ukrainian babushka left on my cheek uh, when we delivered to her some water as well as the bread of life uh, at a local church in a frontline town she just showered my cheek with kisses and said thank you about 10 times in a row i wish you could that because it's your giving and your prayers that enabled it so on behalf of all whom you are helping i want to say thank you thank you for giving it is making a major impact and thank you for praying um, in all three of the cities i was in uh, while i was there all three of them were hit by missile or artillery strikes while i was there uh, one time something i don't know what it was did explode directly over our vehicle uh, but didn't hit us at all um, so thank you for praying. I really appreciate it, as, um, as do the wonderful folks over there. Well, let's turn now to James chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 26. And as you're turning there, I want to try to theme uh, by showing you these two light bulbs. And, um, you know, you don't know, and frankly, I don't know now because um, you know, I can't remember which one is which, um, but let's say that one of these is brand new and the other is dead how would you tell how they look the same you know i kind of bang them on the pulpit hopefully not break them they sound the same so on the outside they look identical so how do you know which one is new and which one is dead well i'm probably going to do what you're going to do which is i'm going to Go home and plug them in and see which one gives light. That's how I'll know which one is alive and which one is dead, which one I should chuck in the trash and which one will shine light over my dining room. I'm going to plug them both in and I'm going to see which one works. That's what today's passage is about. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, the Lord is going to teach us how to tell real faith from fake faith. How to tell someone the difference between someone who has new life and someone who is spiritually dead. How to know if we have a saving faith or a dead faith. So I've entitled today's message, How to Spot Fake Faith faith. How to spot fake faith. Read along with me as we read James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that Faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. As we study this extremely important passage of Scripture, we're going to see that the way to tell a living, saving faith from a fake, dead faith is the same way you tell a dead light bulb from a new one. You look to see if it produces light. Does it work? And that is, of course, exactly what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. As I've mentioned before, James constantly alludes to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is no exception. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 13, Jesus says enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree produces good fruit, but the bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mind and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So how can you tell? It's the one who hears the Lord's words and acts upon them. That's the person whose house is on the rock. The one who hears the words of the Lord but doesn't act upon them, their house is built on sand. So how can you tell a good tree from a bad one, Jesus says? He says you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only those who do the will of the Father who enter. And the difference between the house built on the rock and the one built on sand is whether or not they act upon these words of mine, Jesus says. So as he does throughout his epistle in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James echoes the Lord's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he presses home that key idea from Matthew chapter 7, that you will know a tree by its fruits. You can't see the roots so you know it by its fruits. In other words, you can know if a profession of faith, whether yours or someone else's, you can know whether a profession of faith is real or fake by whether or not it produces works. In other words, you can know if a person is truly born again by whether or not they obey the Lord. Is Jesus Christ their Lord? If so, It will be shown in their obedience to their Lord. A person's claim to have faith is either verified as true or exposed as false by how they live. A true sheep will follow the good shepherd. Yes, a a sheep may stumble and fall. A sheep may wander away. A sheep can backslide or or divert from the right path at times, but a true sheep looked as the whole will be one who follows the good shepherd. A fake, an imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing may bleat and baa with loud claims of faith, but their feet don't and won't follow the shepherd. And that's how you can know they're not part of the flock John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me.'" So how do you know if someone is a sheep of the Good Shepherd? Do they follow him? A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is the point that James is going to press home in chapter two, verses 14 through 26. He's gonna teach us how to spot fake faith. Now, in order to aid our study of this passage, I've divided it into ten sections the case, the context, the claim, the concern, the comparison, the charge, the controversy, the crime, the corroboration, and the conclusion. Let's go through these ten sections together. First, let's look at the case. The case here is saving faith versus dead faith. It's the dead light bulb that doesn't shine and the new one that gives forth light. And James introduces that topic in verse 14 by asking two questions. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Is there anything useful about that kind of faith? That kind of a light bulb? Is there anything useful about that kind, the kind that doesn't shine? And he asks at the end of verse 14, can that kind or can such faith save him? And he uses a third class condition as we're going to see later on to answer that question as no, it cannot. But with these two questions, James introduces the topic and he's asking his readers to make a judgment in the case that he's presenting before them. And the case is this, someone says or claims he has faith, but he has no works. That's the case at hand. And James, by these questions, is calling upon us as his readers to evaluate the case and to draw the right conclusions. Is this someone's so-called faith effective or is it useless? Is it alive or dead? Will this someone's so-called faith save him or will it not? So in verse 14, the case of saving faith versus dead faith is presented. And he's presenting it in question form because he's inviting us to deliberate, to be, as it were, the jury, looking on as this case is presented and drawing the right conclusions, the right verdict. So let's look now at the context. Before we dig into the details of the case, as always, when we're interpreting scripture, we wanna look at the context. And there is a key interpretive clue found in the preceding context, back in chapter one, verses 21 through 22. The context of this passage is the danger of self-delusion, which comes from being a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Again, he's alluding back to that passage in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, the person who hears the word but doesn't act on it is someone who's built his house on the sand. James is saying the same thing. Back in chapter one, verse 21, he exhorts his readers. He says, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This is a powerful statement of salvation by faith. Receive the word have it be implanted in you because it, the word, and the reception of the word is able to save your souls. Then he adds a warning in verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. See, there is self-deception which occurs when you hear the word and don't receive it. When you hear the word and it is not implanted, when you hear the word and you do not act upon it. You think you have faith because there stands a house. But the house is built on sand. The sand of a false profession. The sand of fake faith, dead faith. A counterfeit faith which cannot save. The theme of being a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deceives himself is introduced in chapter one, verses 21 through 22, but it continues on to the end of chapter one and on into the exhortations against the sin of partiality in chapter two. So James here wants his readers to understand the difference between genuine saving faith and the various counterfeits and imitations which cannot and do not save. For example, At the end of chapter one, look at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, right? He looks, there's, there's a house, it's a religious house, but it's built on sand. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Clearly, there's a great danger of self-deception. He thinks himself to be religious, but he doesn't realize that he has deceived his own heart. His religion is worthless. It can't accomplish anything. James, in context, is addressing the danger of self-deception, which comes from spiritual hypocrisy. That was a concern to James, just as it was a concern to Paul when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Plug your faith in and see if it shines or if it's dead. This is what James is urging us to do. It's to test ourselves. Now, in order to help us examine ourselves, James now introduces us to a hypothetical someone. In verse 14, he introduces us to a hypothetical someone and urges us to consider their claim. Well, what is the claim of this hypothetical person? This person claims, I have faith. James 2 verse 14 says, what uses it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? This is the claim. This hypothetical person comes and says, I have faith. He makes a profession of faith. And the verb says here, he says he has faith, that verb is in the present tense. So this is someone who regularly, continually claims to have faith. This is not someone who just like one day you know, said, oh yeah, maybe I believe in God. This is someone who on a regular, continual, weekly basis professes faith in Christ. He often claims to have faith. He regularly and clearly talks about his faith. His profession of faith is clear and continual. He claims to be born again. He claims to be a new creation in Christ. Returning to our opening illustration, he's labeled himself a new light bulb. That's what's on his package. He's advertising everywhere I'm a new light bulb. Now, there's nothing wrong with that claim, it's normal. And typical to profess faith. In fact, we are are to do that. We are to name the name of the Lord. We are to profess faith. We're to acknowledge Christ before men publicly. But after this claim comes a concern. And James raises this concern in the next verse. This person claims to have faith, but James says, but he has no works. He has no works. This is also in the continuous tense. He's continually saying he has faith, but he is also continually lacking works. The days and the weeks and the months and the years roll on and on and on and he keeps saying he has faith and that he's saved, but his life continually shows nothing. No evidence, no fruit, no works. He has, present tense, in an ongoing way, he is having no works. This is the concern. He's all talk and no walk. As Alexander McLaren put it so pointedly, the people who least live their creeds are quite often the people who shout the loudest about them. The paralysis which affects their arms does not in these cases seem to interfere with the tongue. They're all talk and no walk. Now it's important to notice that James does not say that this guy was living a terrible life of sin. He doesn't say, he says he has faith, but he lives in terrible sins. That's not what he says. He says he claims have faith, but he is devoid. He has no works. It's not what he does which is the issue, it's what he fails to do. It's what he doesn't do which is the concern. James is concerned because this guy has no works. He doesn't serve, he doesn't show love and compassion in practical ways to others. He doesn't try to lead others to Christ. He says he has faith but he has no works and James asks, can that kind of faith save him and The Greek grammar of that question is what's called a third class condition, which implies that the answer is no. No, it cannot. And that's what James is going to show us. There is a deep concern here because there are no works. Now to help us understand why the answer to the question in verse 14 is no, James now takes us to a poignant and revealing comparison. He moves from the concern to a comparison. And he compares fake faith with fake compassion faith fake is like fake compassion it is empty and it is useless look at verses 15 through 16 if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and be filled and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body what use is that I just came from some places where I stood with people in the ruins of their homes. Nothing to shelter them from the rain, nothing to wear. Watch them digging the tattered remains of their clothing out of the rubble of their homes. What good would it do if I said, hey, I I really wish there will be peace in your village. I really want you to be warm and well-fed. And then we just turned around and left. What use is that? And I want you to notice that phrase, what use is it, is repeated. It's repeated in verse 14 at the beginning and then at the end of verse 16. He says, what use is it, my brethren, at the beginning of verse 14, and then at the end of verse 16, he says, what use is that? So he's bracketing this, comparison with the phrase, what use is that? It's what scholars call an inclusio, bookends, which wrap something up and point us to the important content in the middle. What use is it if you have fake compassion, actionless compassion? And this comparison is powerful because he's saying that an empty profession of faith will do, mo- will do no more for the soul of the hypocrite than the empty wishes of the hypocrite does for the body of the poor person. That's what he's saying. An empty profession of faith will do no more for the hypocrite than an empty wish of warmth does for the poor. This is a powerful comparison, and it drives home a sobering point. Tragically, what the hypocrite does to the poor physically, he does to himself spiritually. With empty words of fake compassion, he sends the poor man off to freeze and to starve to death. And with empty words of fake faith, he sends himself off to burn and perish forever in eternal death. This is a powerful comparison. He's saying, look, to the hypocrite, he's saying, look, the same way that you send off the poor man without doing anything for his body, and he goes out and dies, The same thing is what you're doing to yourself with an empty profession of faith. You are sending yourself off to die without doing anything really for your soul. It's as empty for your soul as it was for that guy's body. He's going to return at the end of the chapter in verse 26 to a comparison between the body and the soul. This is a powerful and sobering comparison. And so now comes, after the comparison, comes the charge. Here is the charge made in the case. This person who claims to have faith but has no works has a dead faith, a faith which cannot save, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That's how you know it's dead, it's by itself. You screw the light bulb in, there's no light, it's just by itself itself. It's dead. Again, James is echoing the teaching of Jesus in his parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13. It's only the soil which produces fruit and brings forth a harvest that Jesus says is good soil. Everything else, the roadside, the stony ground and the thorny ground produce no crop. The seed remains by itself. And that's how you know there's no life. In the same way, James says in verse 17 that the way we can identify a dead faith is if it remains by itself. A so-called faith that fails to produce works isn't really faith at all. It's a fraud. It's, an, it's empty words. It's the roadside where the birds steal the seed. It's the stony ground where the sun burns it up. It's the thorny ground where the cares of life chokes it out. But what it is not is good soil because good soil will produce fruit. It will produce the shoots of life. In a few weeks, I'm gonna show you this picture I took of two incredibly beautiful flowers that had sprouted out of the ground in front of a smoked out and ruined tank. Good soil will produce life despite All of the efforts against it from the enemy of our souls. Good soil brings life, brings fruit. No fruit, no good soil, no living, saving faith. This is the charge which James makes against the hypothetical someone who claims to have faith but has no deeds. James charges him with fraud. Your faith, he says, is a fraud. It remains by itself and it therefore proves that it is dead. Next, James anticipates objections. Objections which come from those who have been influenced by two opposite but common errors. So next I wanna look at the controversy. Salvation by works and easy believism. Two opposite but common errors. Verse 18, but someone may say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Try to show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works, James says. But notice this now hypothetical someone, this is the second hypothetical someone that James introduces us to. This is a hypothetical reader who James anticipates raising a theological objection to the statement he just made in verse 17 that faith by itself is dead. And in verse 18, the objector objector seems to think that there is a strong dichotomy between faith and works, that they're somehow incompatible with each other. He says to James, look, you have faith, but I have works. See, you're the faith guy. I'm the works guy. I'm the earn my way to heaven guy. You're the get to heaven by your faith guy. And in the following verses, James is going to sharply refute this false dichotomy between faith and works. So it's going to be helpful to spend a few minutes examining the controversy which lies behind this objection, this anticipated objection which James raises and then addresses beginning in verse 18. We know from New Testament history that there was a controversy in the early church between Jewish Christians who were still heavily influenced by the legalism of the Pharisees and Gentile Christians who were still heavily influenced by the licentiousness of the pagans. So here you have people who are coming out of a background of salvation by works. And then you have these other people who are coming out of this background of absolute lawlessness and licentiousness and just do whatever you want. And there's a controversy between these two groups. And the problem is, and the reason the controversy was so hard to solve is because they were both wrong. They were both wrong. Salvation by works is wrong and easy believism is wrong. Legalism is wrong and antinomianism is wrong. But this is the the context of this passage, is this controversy between legalism and licentiousness. On one extreme, there were those who thought that salvation can be earned by works, and on the other extreme were those who thought that salvation has no effect at all on the way a person lives. James is saying that both are errors and both are spiritually deadly. Now, we remember, of course, that Paul powerfully refutes the heresy of salvation by works in the books of Romans and Galatians. Well here, James is taking on the opposite error, the error of easy believism. The idea that you can just, you know, flap your lips at some meeting. You know, you gather with some people, some guy preaches, you flap your lips, you say some magic words and it doesn't matter after that. Well James says no, it does matter because if your claim of faith produces no works, All you did was flap your lips. You didn't even have real faith to begin with. You were never saved. And that's why your life doesn't show any fruit. No life, no fruit. As the oft-repeated saying goes, Paul and James are are not antagonists facing each other with crossed swords. They stand back to back, confronting different foes of the gospel. Paul stands and defends the gospel against salvation by works, and James stands and defends the gospel against easy, easy believism. One attacks the error of salvation by works, and the other attacks the error of salvation without works. One error says that works are the means of salvation, while the other error denies that works are even the result of salvation. What is the gospel truth? The gospel truth is that salvation is by faith unto works. By faith unto works. Let's see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter two, that famous passage in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. And I wanna urge you not to quote verses eight and nine, and leave off verse 10, because they're actually one part of one statement. Verse 10 actually has a conjunction which links it with the verse before. So Let's read Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? So faith is the means. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right, so salvation is by faith alone. Faith alone is the means by which we receive salvation. But look at what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, right? God creates something in us. He makes us a new creation. We are his workmanship. We are created in the new birth. We are created in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. For good works or unto good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You're saved by faith unto works. There's a goal of this new life. God planted the seed in the soil and gave it life so that it would spring up and it would produce fruit for his glory and the good of others. A person is born again by grace through faith alone But once he has been made alive in Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, his new life begins to produce good fruit. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. He begins to work in you. So how can you know whether you're indwelled by the Spirit? You know, some of our charismatic friends will say, well, it's an ecstatic feeling, or it's speaking in tongues, or it's whatever. But what Scripture says is You know that the spirit is present in your life because you see his work in your heart, changing your desires, changing what you live for and why you live and what you do and how you think and what you say. He sanctifies you. And as my mentor used to say, if there's no evidence of sanctification, that's evidence of the absence of justification. This is why the reformers The great reformers who stood at the cost of their lives on the principle of sola fide or faith alone salvation by faith alone the way that they would teach this is as follows in the famous statement salvation is by faith alone but the faith that saves never remains alone you're saved by faith but you're saved by faith unto good works you're made a new creation so that the shoots of life will spring up and the good tree will bear good fruit. That is the Lord's intent, and that is what he does when he saves. So how do you know whether that new life has occurred? Well, Jesus says you'll know a tree by what? It's fruit. This is why Luther writes so powerfully, oh, it is a living, quick, and mighty thing, this faith. So mighty that it is impossible that it should do all good things without ceasing. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question can even be asked, it does them and is always doing them. He who does not these good works is a man without faith. Yea, it is impossible to separate works from faith just as it is impossible to separate burning and shining from fire. If you see something that says it's fire and it is not hot and it gives no light, you have been deceived. It is a mighty living quickening thing this faith Luther says it gives life and that life produces warmth and light so while works are not the root of salvation they are its fruit works are not the means of salvation but they are its intended and its guaranteed result intended by the Lord and guaranteed by the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we reach perfection. This is why that use of the continuous is so important. James says, look, the concern here is not that sometimes the fruit doesn't look that great or, you know, sometimes the tree's a bit barren. What he says is that continually this guy has no works. There's nothing. It's like the parable Jesus saw, the fig tree, right? It's just year after year, there's just nothing on it. And remember the disciples were like, hey, let's rip this dead tree down and throw it away. And Jesus says, no, let's wait a little bit longer. Maybe next year it will produce works. So, you know, heed the warning, right? (laughs) Heed the warning. After dealing with the controversy between the legalists and the antinomians in verse 18, in verse 19, James lays a serious charge at the feet of those who claim to have faith but have no deeds. He charges them with a crime and the crime is demonic duplicity, demonic duplicity. Look at verse 19. He says, You believe that God is one. You do well, but the demons also believe that and shudder. He charges them with demonic duplicity. Notice that what the hypocrite believed was doctrinally correct. He believed that God is one. This is a reference to the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This person had the right head knowledge, but the wrong heart response. He affirmed, perhaps, the creeds of the Christians, but he does the deeds of the demons. He professes faith in the creeds of the Christians, but he lives according to the deeds of the demons. He is, James says, guilty of demonic duplicity. He says one thing and does another. What he claims to believe and how he actually lives have absolutely no correspondence. His lifestyle, therefore, shows that his claims of faith are a lie. He's a fraud. His lips claim he's a child of God, but his life shows he's a child of the devil. In John 8, Jesus confronts people like this, religious hypocrites. He says, you're of your, child, you're, you're of your father, the devil. And he says, why? He says, because you, you want to do the deeds of your father. See, that's, what you, that's how you want to live. You want to live the way demons live in lawless rebellion against God. Like the demons, the hypothetical hypocrite James is discussing knows that God exists. In fact, in Matthew chapter eight, we see the demons even acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God. And this guy is just like him. He believes that there's a God. He even acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And James says, yeah, even the demons believe that and they shudder. Why do they shudder? Because what they know and how they live is so different. Like the demons, the hypocrite responds to gospel truths with rebellion, not repentance, with wickedness, not worship. And so like the demons, he is someone who should shudder because he's not someone who's saved. He's guilty of demonic duplicity, and that is a crime with eternal consequences. Now having leveled the charge of demonic duplicity at the feet of his hypothetical opponent, James now presents corroborating evidence which proves that faith without deeds is dead. And the corroboration is two pieces of evidence from the Old Testament. In verses 20 through 25, James provides, provides two pieces of corroborating evidence from two famous people in the Old Testament, from Abraham and Rahab. One is Abraham, and James introduces him as Abraham our father, and then he introduces Rahab as the harlot. Now, Why does he choose these two examples? Well, he chooses them purposefully because Abraham and Rahab together represent the full range of humanity from the highest in social standing to the lowest in social standing it's abraham our father the great patriarch and it's rahab the harlot the gentile from jericho he presents these two pieces of evidence because he wants to show that what he is talking about is applicable to everyone from the greatest to the least from the gentile patriarch to the gen- from the great patriarch to the gentile prostitute and the point James is making in this section is that everyone whom the Old Testament describes as being saved had a faith that produced works. That's the point. None of the Old Testament saints had a so-called faith that remained alone and failed to produce what Jesus called the fruit of repentance. Now to interpret these verses properly, we'll need to interpret each phrase in context and pay careful attention to who is doing the action of the verbs. I want you to notice that in verse 20, the challenge is laid down for objectors to recognize, or that word can be translated to know or to be shown that faith without works is useless. He says in verse 20, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, he's trying to show something to the jury. He's proving it to the jury, not to the judge, not to God who knows all things, but to the jury who doesn't. Are you willing to recognize this, he says, And this, by the way, is a key interpretive fact. James is not talking about how God recognizes the validity or the falsity of a person's faith, but how people can recognize it. He has in mind the jury, not the judge. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God can look at the heart. He knows exactly and perfectly at all times whether a person's faith is real or not. But people can't see into the heart. We can't gaze. All we see is the outside of the light bulb. God sees inside, he knows what's in there, but we see the outside, so how do we know? How can we recognize a false profession of faith? How can we spot a fake faith? And James answers the same way Jesus did. He says, look at their fruit. That's how you'll know. You'll observe fruit, you'll observe works, or you'll see the lack thereof and you will know. This is why in verse 21, James contends that Abraham was justified by works when he laid Isaac on the altar. Well, what does he mean when he says Abraham was justified by works when he laid Isaac on the altar? Well, he uses a key term here, the term to justify. It's decaio. It means to declare righteous. It's when someone announces that someone else is a righteous person. That's what the word means. And it means that in its various contexts. It's often used in scriptures of God's declaration of a person's forgiveness and salvation. How God announces that someone is forgiven and counted righteous. His pronouncement that they are born again and forgiven on the basis of faith in Christ. But very importantly, I want you to listen to me very carefully. This word is also used in scripture to describe people realizing that someone is righteous. It's used to describe people announcing or declaring that someone is righteous for example in romans chapter 3 verse 4 this exact same word is used of people declaring that god is righteous in all of his deeds he says so that god you will be justified in your deeds and in what you say it's people who are saying yes god is righteous he's he's righteous in all his ways and what he says and what he does in first timothy three sixteen, this word is used of jesus that he was vindicated in the spirit In Luke chapter seven verse thirty-five, Jesus says that wisdom is justified or vindicated. The same word, "dikayo," by her children. The children declare that wisdom is right and righteous. So the word always means to declare righteous or to vindicate, but it is the context which determines who is declaring whom to be righteous. In Romans, Paul uses it to describe God declaring the sinner to be righteous. But here in James, James is using it to describe people recognizing real faith and recognizing fake faith. Announcing, like a jury does, who is truly righteous and who has been a fraud. In James chapter 2, the discussion is clearly framed in verse 14, in verse 18, and in verse 20 as discussing how people can recognize whether someone's claim of faith is real or fake. Right, someone says he has faith but has no works, so how can you know? That's verse 14. Verse 18, someone will say you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 20, are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless and then look at verse 22 he's after he says was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up isaac his son on the altar he says you see you see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works faith was perfected and then in verse 23 he says the result was that abraham was called the friend of god in other words people recognize that abraham has a personal relationship with god He's a righteous person, the father of faith, the friend of God. James is discussing how people can recognize whether someone's claim of faith is real or fake. And both examples he gives supports this idea. The offering of Isaac was an action that was witnessed by witnesses. Obviously, Isaac witnessed it pretty up close and personal. But there were also... Genesis 22 says twice and emphasizes this, that there were two young men that were taken on this journey. They stood off at a distance and witnessed this incredible act of obedience. Rahab in the same way. James doesn't focus on her profession of faith. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, Rahab makes a profession of faith. She says, Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. James isn't talking about that. He's talking about the action which showed that she was a believer to the two spies. That's how they knew she was a believer. That's why they went back and said, hey, you know when we conquer this city, there's one of ours there. Both Abraham and Rahab were justified or declared righteous by God the moment they believed. They were declared righteous by God the moment they believed, but they were justified or declared righteous by people when people saw the fruit of repentance being manifested in concrete acts of obedience. You see, God determines justification on the basis of what he sees in the heart, but people can only recognize justification on the basis of what they see in your life. So James' statements about justification by works in verses 20 through 25 are not talking about the declaration of righteousness by God, but the demonstration of that fact of righteousness to people. And this becomes even clearer when we notice how James cites Genesis 15:6. Right, Genesis 15:6 says Abraham believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. As Paul points out in Romans, this verse clearly shows that God's declaration of justification occurs on the basis of faith alone. How do we know that? Well, this declaration that Abraham was righteous, which is the one made by God, occurs years before he was circumcised, Paul says, and even more years before he offered Isaac on the altar. He was already declared righteous by God back in Genesis 15. So when we get to Genesis 22 and he offers Isaac on the altar, what is the justification which which is occurring there? Well, it's the demonstration of his salvation to people. It's the proof, the evidence, the fruit that people could see and observe and therefore conclude, aha, Abraham truly is a believer. He is a friend of God and he is the father of faith. James says in verse 22 that Abraham's faith was perfected as a result of his works. And the word used there is teleon, which means to reach the intended goal. And in verse 23 he points out that as a result of his obedience, Abraham was called God's friend. James is saying that it was Abraham's great act of obedience that caused people to conclude that he was indeed the father of faith, he was indeed God's friend, and that caused his faith to reach its intended purpose, that Abraham would become the father of faith and the example of faith to all the peoples of the world. So it is through the powerful examples of both the patriarch and the prostitute that James proves that a real living faith produces the fruit of works, and that it is how a And that works are how a person's faith is recognized as being real, true, and genuine by those around us. And so we now reach the conclusion, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's the conclusion. Just as you can tell whether a person's body is living or dead by whether it breathes, you can tell whether a person's faith is living or dead by whether it works. Plug in the light bulb and see if it shines. It's time to take your spiritual pulse. When the light bulb of your profession of faith is plugged in, does it shine? You claim to have faith. Does the evidence of your deed support or contradict your claim? When those around you look at the way you live, does it support or contradict that profession of faith? Test yourself. The scripture says, see if you're... In the faith, examine yourself. If you plug your faith into the socket and it produces no light, what do you do? Well, you need to recognize you're dead. You're a dead bulb. You need to repent truly for the first time and believe the gospel. And then joyously and gloriously produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray If there are dead bulbs among us, Lord, that as they plug it into the socket, this great test that James has given us, and if they see that they continually have no works, Lord, that they would humble themselves, acknowledge their spiritual deadness, and for the first time, truly repent, truly believe, and receive that gracious and glorious gift of eternal life by grace through faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.